Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hello. This is Gigabit Nation. Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. Um, recently, uh, I wrote this article about, you know, should we be taking a deeper, more in, uh, intense look at wireless as part of this question of how do we bring better broadband to communities? And it was interesting. It's like wireless and fiber have become something like this religious war of sorts, and people are very adamant about one and versus the other, and and it's interesting the amount of pushback on uh, from certain quarters about the the role of wireless and how important this is. Um, however, I still firmly believe that wireless, in the variations of you know you have mesh, you have Wi-Fi, you have um, point-to-point, and so forth. But in that category of wireless, that this technology represents a strong potential um, technology to basically get to the end point, which is more people connected, doing the things that are necessary to improve personal economic development, community economic development, and a whole range of other um, goods that come from, uh, from the technology. And an article caught my attention about the Red Hook Initiative, which is a community-based uh, program in Brooklyn. And in reading about that, it posed the question, you know, can we use wireless mesh to close the digital divide? So I decided to pull in um, Tony Schloss, who is the Director of Community Initiatives for the Red Hook Initiative, to, to be our guest today and talk about uh, his experience actually in the trenches, in communities, helping to close the digital divide on a, on a daily basis. So, Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Craig. It's great to be here. So let's start with, you know, the obvious question. What is the Red Hook Initiative all about? Yeah, um, so the Red Hook Initiative is a youth development organization um, in Red Hook, Brooklyn, we have the second largest low-income housing development, and so that is approximately 11,000 residents. The Red Hook neighborhood is sort of an isolated neighborhood because it's hemmed in by the water and then separated from the rest of the city by a highway. Public transportation is not... Um, so, I mean, on New York standards, it's not... It's kind of disconnected from public transportation, so we have this sort of isolated cultural uh, element here in Red Hook. So the Red Hook Initiative is, supports youth in helping them uh, find, with academic support, find direction in their life. We have a pipeline of programs um, from middle school all the way up to 24 years of age. And there's also the general thrust is to empower young people in Red Hook to um, be in control and have focus um, in moving towards finding their career goals or life goals. So that's the Reddick Initiative. And then as part of our work, I'm sure we'll get into, we began exploring, like, could a wireless community network help us with what we're trying to do in the neighborhood? Mm-hmm. So how, how um, I don't know, strong of a role has... Um, the Red Hook Initiative come to play in the community? Hmm. Um, yes. Um, so just to clarify, the Red Hook Initiative is the organization. Red Hook yes. Wi-Fi is our um, – okay, good. So I'm Wait, very glad you asked the question. I just want to get an, you know, an overall sense for the presence of yes. the, you know, the program. 
Yeah, I appreciate the, I appreciate the question. Um, as I said, the Red Hook, we call it RHI, Red Hook Initiative, has been in Red Hook for 11 years. We've jumped around different or, uh, sites that are in, in at certain points in the early years were donated by police athletically or a landlord who supports our work. Now we have, a couple of years ago, we built a huge, not a huge, we, we um, renovated a, a warehouse, so now we have much more space, much more um, staff. Uh, we're a large organization. And, you know, the Red Hook is very lucky to have a bunch of nonprofit organizations, um, some arts and some social services. I think, um, I guess I would say, you know, we were hit by Sandy and Red Hook Initiative became sort of the recovery hub center where, and eventually the work was distributed to other organizations, organizations in the neighborhood and other sites. But I guess it's just, to me, I think it's a, it was a testament to how the community views the Red Hook Initiative. People knew, people know that their son or their nephew or their grandson go to a program at Red Hook Initiative or uh, they've been to Red Hook Initiative to get direction to some resource for themselves. Um, you know, Red Hook is sort of a split uh, neighborhood because we have this large public housing population and then we have a much smaller um, uh, population of middle-class homeowners. And so Red Hook Initiative really has very strong ties to the network of public housing residents and then we're supported greatly by the, mm, the higher income bracket that live around the housing development. And so in that way, our network, of our social network in the neighborhood is actually quite broad. So um, there's a lot of other organizations doing really great work here. We, get, we, just, have a, we just happen to have a broad network as do the others. Mm -hmm. So now was, was, the, um, was Hurricane Sandy the genesis of the wireless network or was it the thing that kind of, I don't know, put the network on high profile display? Yeah, um, absolutely the latter case. Um, it, we had begun in the spring of 2012 and exploring a community network, um, and we had put up a couple routers in a couple different spots and were exploring with what to, what to do with them. Uh, they weren't connected. Um, and, you know, the one that was on our community organization building was sharing Internet access. The one that was at a central park area did not have Internet access. And we were sort of at this point where we were like, how, what do we do now? We can't share our Verizon uh, connection across the entire neighborhood. So we were kind of stuck at the moment that Sandy hit. And then what happened is it just so happened, another reason why Red Hook Initiative became the recovery hub is our building did not lose power. So we did not have a basement and the water sort of just like just stopped before our building. And then the other building that our other router happened to be on also did not lose power. That you know most buildings in the neighborhood lost power. So in that sense, what happened was we were the only network that was left standing. The mm -hmm. larger networks, cell networks, were down for about a week in Red Hook as well. But people were coming, and the word was getting out that if you wanted to speak to loved ones on Facebook or whoever, or um, just like communicate, you could do it using our network. Um, so it was sort of happenstance that we happened to have had our small network that we were experimenting with uh, in the places that that stayed up during Sandy. And just as you said, it became a really important, it became the use case that we could bring to funders and other supporters to say, there's so many reasons why this is beneficial to the community, and look at this one, look at the benefit of from a resiliency standpoint. And so... It was the, the the Sandy was really bad in lots of ways, but it also brought a lot of good. It brought a lot of good to Red Hook as well. So. Hmm, interesting. So so then let's talk about the um, how you took this uh, happenstance of becoming the you know the the wireless island in the recovery zone. And, and then went to take it to another level and then kind of bringing it to where it is today. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's see. Um, we began 
we had this use case, as I said, and then we began taking that out. And we had originally, I had worked with a young person named uh, Jonathan Baldwin, who was a graduate student at Parsons, and he was building a sort of a social mapping software that you would use on a community network to increase the social engagement, like person-to-person -person engagement. Uh, mm -hmm. And that was his thesis, and that's why we started working on creating. And I wanted to do a network and an uh, organization called Open Technology Institute put us together, and it was a really great partnership. Um, and that also began Retic Initiative's relationship with Open Technology Institute. And the Open mm -hmm. Technology Institute uh, is um, they would do a better job explaining it, but you know they they're all about creating open source software to support. Um, democracy and innovation around the world. So as part of that, um, so one project they had been working on uh, was a project called the Digital Stewards Program, and that was essentially supporting, kind of developing a curriculum to support communities and building their own wireless networks. So they had done one group set of workshops in Detroit with the uh, Allied Media Project there and Detroit Digital Futures, and with them they developed the first um, uh, the first version of this digital source program or curriculum. They brought it to us. We put it into our program. We decided we would make a program that was a year-long fellowship technology training program for young adults. And we used some of that digital source curriculum that they had developed and we adapted it to our own purposes, which sort of included professional development and job training. The curriculum itself is specifically for building a community network. Um, and so that's then how it became aligned with the Reddick Initiative mission, which is to provide support for young adults, in this case uh, persons from Red Hook who are 19 to 24, with helping them find a career goal, in this case finding technology, working in the technology industry. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's essentially how we were able to fund resources and that's how, because this, this program of, of hiring young adults, training them to do the installation, maintenance, and promotion of the wireless network. That's how um, we were able to get resources for our programming. Um, and then other people who were interested in just the network side of it too wanted to help support us and solve us, especially, as I said, the resiliency aspect to it. And so that's how it took off. And I could tell you more about how the Digital Stewards program has developed over time, but um, what uh, you know that's a really the network is really interesting and important and innovative. But I really love talking about the Digital Steward program because that's what creates the capacity in the neighborhood to support the technology. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in the survey of economic development professionals, I reference uh, that you know I, I do this every year, and one of the things that uh, I address in this year's survey was not just, you know, people's take on the technology in in a general sense, you know, the are you planning to buy or, you know, to build a wireless network or a wired network and so forth, but also ask the question, if you want to create entrepreneurs, you know, is broadband the way to go, number one? Number two, you know, what other programs are needed in order to make entrepreneurs successful once you get them on on the internet, and the there were three things that the the um, economic developers talked about. One was training. One was technology training. One was business training. You know, so basically, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, um, you know, here's how you actually have some basic core business skills so you may have a decent chance of staying in business. And the third one, and the most popular one, was mentoring that there needs to be some sort of mentor program to bring entrepreneurs along. And I would, and you can tell me if it's true or not, but I would think that for even for people who are just using the program to get jobs or to get a skills that they can advance in the jobs that they have, that having support programs is as key to them as economic developers say it is as important for trying to uh, create the next generation of entrepreneurs. Is that a fair assessment? Hmm. <laughs> um, so it's it's difficult for me to say, and I think I actually need you to 
rephrase the question in some ways because the population that we're dealing, that we work with is, I mean, when I think of tech entrepreneurs, I often, I think of, you know, high, highly educated white males. And that is far from who we're dealing with. And so what can we do? Well, one is that like there's so many other areas of technology that a person could find a career within. Um, and you could work for one of those startups, you know. Um, and so I often, when I think of where, I, I may have misunderstood the question, but when I think of where young people that I work with, can, work with can fit in, I think that, you know, there's lots of places for them to plug in where they will eventually get the skills because also they're really starting from scratch um, in terms of their tech skills. Um, and then they can grow to reach that entrepreneurship level. Um, and what I actually can tell the young people and we talk about especially is that they, once they get to that spot, they're going to be brilliant because they have the perspective of a whole population that many people in the tech industry do not, you know, like right, right, minorities exactly. and low-income populations. There's no, they're underrepresented with, by, like, tech companies in terms of their, of, like, their personnel, but also, you know, in terms of, what's being designed for that population. So, right. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think my, my question my question was more along the lines of in the discussion with um, economic developers, we're basically saying broadband can take um, underserved populations and, and give them a pathway to becoming entrepreneurs. But in order to do that, you need to have support programs. My yeah. question is, can you take low-income individuals, even if their intent is to get into just into a job and a career, uh, and use broadband, you know, wireless or wire, whatever, to get them better prepped for that? But in order to get them better prepped, you can't just give them the technology or access to the technology. You have to get, you have to have some sort of program to support them, in addition to mm-hmm. just give them access to technology. Yes, okay, so absolutely. I mean, I agree with you 100%. Um, You know, there's oftentimes, there's, you know, a maxim that I come across all the time, which you can't, like, you can't drop technology into a community and expect it to be, the community to accept it and just take it upon themselves. You know, they need to understand the technology. They need to have a hand in building the technology um, and maintaining it. And so... Uh, yes, absolutely, and, and I guess actually that's what you know. As in what we're talking about, in a sense, is like in some degree, is like bridging the digital divide. And I think that's exactly right, which is to say, you need programs to bring the support, but also, I guess what I want to say to your question is, there are so many, especially in terms of entrepreneurship, there are so many ways that a person could use a broadband, could use a wireless network in their community for some sort of entrepreneurial venture. You know, like we're, what what the young people are learning who are in the program are like ways to use this connection, you know. Um, And if you're not in the program, you're not really aware of what you could do this for. Like you could have a radio show, you know. You could, Mm -hmm. obviously you could advertise your T-shirt business or something like that. But um, the divide that exists is, you know, first it was access, and then it and that and then it's sort of like skills and abilities to use that access, and then I think there's a third level now, which is like, uh, which is what we're talking about, is using, knowing, I guess, um, building the, the 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 social interactions that support knowing how to use technology and and bridging off them into other opportunities. Mm-hmm. And. It's a, um, I think that uh, part of the education, too, though, has to happen with uh, government leaders, policymakers, you know, people in other communities, potential allies, if you will, so that they understand what needs to be done, right? Because I get frustrated sometimes listening to policymakers talk about 
what's needed, you know, what's needed in these, these communities with these programs. And I feel like they don't know that community, right? They don't know mm-hmm. the people in that. And when you talk about, you know, it's important and vital that the kids understand that they have a unique perspective that they're bringing to the job, I think that somebody needs to take responsibility for taking that sort of that body of knowledge to, you know, to, to policymakers, you know, people from where you need to get political and financial support to say, you know, this is why this program is important. This is why you need to do more. You need to do, you know, supplemental stuff or whatever the case may be. But there needs to be this education process that happens from the community outward. And I'm, I'm assuming, you know, that I'm not, um, you know, stating this, 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 I'm assuming, I'm hoping that I'm not stating this the wrong way, but that there needs to be some certain amount of community-driven education to make it clear to people this is how we're going to get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think it's hard. It's hard for some, I believe, you know, part of the challenge is that for anyone, for a policymaker to, policymaker, policymaker has a hard time understanding sort of this last mile issue because mm-hmm. it seems as though Internet access and somewhat skills and how to use it is ubiquitous. But as you and I know who study this kind of thing, we know that it's not. I mean, we, I don't know if it's you and I or someone else has spoken about how like Internet access in New York City is actually very, and quality is actually very poor. And that's like, a, that's surprising to people, you know. Um, and so that's like the first challenge. But then that's just what you say is like there's training needs to happen in order. It, I just feel like it's, a, it's at a lot of different levels, which is like you need to be learned how to train. So you use your computer to support your, uh, you know, livelihood and your education and your growth as a person or as a civic, uh, as your and your civic duty, your civic duty, you know, to be a full member of society, you need to sort of like be connected online in some form or fashion. Um, and that doesn't happen if you just get an Internet connection on a computer. Someone needs to tell you exactly how you apply for a job or where you find these educational resources. Um, it's not as simple as it may seem if after you've been doing it for as many years as maybe you and I have, you know. Um, and then, as you say, the training program, that's where you then take that's – the, that's what I was saying before. Like That's the last step. That's the third step where you realize you can – you can encourage that civic involvement, participation within a community using technology. You know, it's not just me voting on something online, but it's like I can use the tools to get to bring my community out to vote or to maybe just to come have a conversation about what we want to vote for or something like that. And it doesn't even have to be online necessarily. I can use it as a tool for us to gather around the flagpole, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's how people start. That's where that's where people really that's where like divisions can be broken down and um, people can gain skills to like I said increase their own their own future and then those that of those around them I mean that's you were talking about economic development I mean that's just, that is what has been we've been talking to you today because I think, you know, it's kind of an innovative approach to use a wireless network as a community organizing tool as opposed to an economic development tool. But at the same time, they go hand in hand, you know. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I I mean, it's difficult because I guess the only last thing I'll say is is there's so many challenges, as you know, and the last one or another one is the sort of the market, you know. I originally mm-hmm. began the idea of what a, I, I usually my the first inkling of having creating a network was because there was only one option if you wanted broadband connection or any kind of connection in Red Hook houses, the public housing. It was Time Warner, and it just mm-hmm. seemed to me like that is not correct. That's a monopoly, you know. And mm-hmm. now there are two, <laughs> so you know now actually there is there you have as many choices in the houses as you as I do a person who lives outside of them, but it's still only two. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the market forces are also holding back some of this innovation. So we're really lucky in our neighborhood to have a local ISP, a really small company called Brooklyn Fibers, two brothers. And if it weren't for them, it'd be much more difficult to do what we do. 
Right. And that sort of tracks with what I have found in, pretty much across the U.S., not just in urban areas but also in rural areas, is that often it is the, uh, the local provider that is the bridge out because mm-hmm. the larger providers could care less. They don't really care about the quality of their service and whether or not you have a, a working modem and a, and a working Internet connection or working as well as it needs to be. Um, and, and, but the local folks tend to, because they are of the community, from the community, you know, care more and will do more to, 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 you know, to bridge that divide, you know, to make technology work for people and make it affordable. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. It's unfortunate, but it makes sense that a larger company isn't going to put in the resources to go to a 30-person community in Idaho or something like that. And I guess the corollary here in New York is maybe they won't put in the resources necessary to support a public housing uh, community because same reason, there won't be as many subscribers there as they will be on the Upper East Side or something like that. So mm-hmm. the market and, force is really changing things. Yeah, go on. I was going to say, so one of the things that um, uh, the guests on the show yesterday, the folks from Education Superhighway talked about was um, when you can show the numbers so, like, for example, they did, they did a fair amount of research to, to point out to folks how much of a reduction you see in price with every increase of competitors. So if I've got two competitors, my average price will be X. If I have three or four, it'll be Y. And what they found is that having, being able to present that data all of a sudden changes how policymakers and politicians look at things when you can say, you know what, our issue here is this would cost us a whole lot less if there was a, you know, some sort of program that was generating competitors. Now, in your case, it seems that um, it's not so much the outside forces creating or supporting a competitor. It is the community itself supporting a competitor. Right, you guys are making that local ISP uh, sustainable in many respects. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and, I would. Mm-hmm. So go ahead. Uh, I, I would only. I guess I agree. I mean, I know that I don't know the full details of Brooklyn Fiber's thing, but at the same uh, business. But I do know, like, for them to even begin, they had to have a a, a roster of clients, and they happened to do it because they were in New York. They were able to. Bring wireless, bring a wireless connection to like a few different buildings on the water, and so that allowed them to start, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And then from there on, yes, our network. <laughs> What's been, I hope, good for them is that in expanding our network, we're actually essentially expanding theirs as well, or their reach into the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. we're kind of we're feeding each other in some in some ways, hopefully, as far as I understand. And the best part about it, I mean, just in terms of just as you said, is that we work with them all the time. Like our young adults are on rooftops with Brooklyn Fiber technicians um, and they have begun employing digital stewards to help them do their work. I mean, they did that very quickly because they couldn't find people who had those skills, you know. Mm-hmm. So it works really... It's In terms of competition, yeah, it, it's... Uh, it's a shame there are more of those types of companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you bring up an interesting point here. Um, you're talking about the kids working with the uh, provider. One of the things I've seen in other communities, and this and what and what you're describing seems consistent with that, is that whoever a community uses to bring the technology to that community. So, for example, in another city, it might be uh, they'll create a nonprofit, and the nonprofit's business is to bring, you know, wireless access to a particular low-income community. But what they will do is they will take the youth in the community or some number of youth in the community and train them in the skills needed to actually 
you know, bring that technology to uh, that community. So it may be in your case, you're, you know, you've got people on rooftops working with the provider. In, um, in other communities, the youth have been training, like, say, older uh, seniors or, uh, you know, folks who don't have – adults who don't have a lot of technology savvy. So in, in some way or in several ways, they will take the youth and, and, and incorporate them into the, the, the organization or whatever it is that's bringing the broadband to the community and do it in such a way that those kids pick up valuable skills that they can now take and go get a job either at a tech company or at a tech department for a, you know, for a company. That, that, that's what you're describing, right? Some sort of, you know, use the youth to help expand the ability to bring the service and also get a job so they can become, you know, more employable for better paying jobs. That's absolutely right. And it, and the first point of it is just like you said, we're, like we're talking about at the beginning, then you're not dropping something into the community, but the community is like accepting it and picking it up and working with it and has the capacity within it to support it, you know, technically, mm-hmm. perhaps economically or something like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily apropos, but like, uh, you know, during Sandy, our, what happened is our, we had our network up, FEMA found out about it and contacted us and therefore was able to help us um, expand it. And they brought in an internet satellite because we didn't have Verizon service, so that we and then they helped and we, so that we could provide the internet connection. And now, but not only that, it's like myself and Jonathan and a few other people who had been working on it were there to help, you know, direct them to sites. We had the connection to the auto body shop to put on the new router. It's like this; it had to happen in that in that formation couldn't happen otherwise. And another, like, I don't know the full story or how hard they tried, but I know, like, FEMA was in Rockaway, too. But they, if they dropped a network in there, it wouldn't have worked. It would have been like, you know, what is this? Or, like, if they weren't there, it couldn't have been supported. Like, it has, you have to, like, go into community, find out what the needs are, find out whatever exists, what already exists, and then figure out how you can build upon that. Or even better said is, like, how you can help the community build upon that work. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's now is that part of the, the 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 actual game plan? You know, you talked about your, uh, you know, the the program that you have adapted, and it would be interesting. You know, if you get a minute to send me, if you can, the uh, I don't know an outline of the program or or you know whatever kind of documentation, so I can read more about it. But is is you know, but is this as, as one of the one of the um, recommended tactics, I guess, is what I'm looking for mm-hmm. of that program. I would say yes. And, again, it's like, as we were saying before, it's, uh, um, let's see, I mean, yes, just for the same reasons that we just said. Like, you can't, it has to be, there, there's been other, I get contacted by other people who want to do mesh networks in other parts of New York, and I encourage them as much as possible, but at any time that they want to sort of involve anybody municipally, like a borough president or something like that, I, I have to say, like, it, or maybe, like, some with the housing authority, it has to come with some sort of training program or it's just, just another thing that's dropped in. So, you know, the we call it, our network is called Red Hook Wi-Fi instead of Red Hook Initiative Wi-Fi, even though mm-hmm. we are certainly like leading up the charge, but the whole the goal is that the community would take it up itself. And but um, at the same time, someone is going to have to lead it, and someone's going to, and so therefore, and we want that to be our young adults, our digital stewards, and uh, we want to give them the skills to with which to do that. But then hopefully it transfers to a community-wide and supported uh, uh, project. You know. <laughs> which you couldn't do. Or what's ha- what happens elsewhere in Wi-Fi networks that are community Wi-Fi networks, it's usually um, a group of, like, technologists who do it, and they 
geek out about doing it, and it's really cool. And in some of them, in the most successful ones like that that I've come across, they become very they're very welcoming to people who want to get involved in that way, and they have like there's a, there's a uh, Freifunk is a very important uh, community network in Germany, and they have you know I think they have once a month they have like a meeting that's for beginners, so you can come and you will be given some sort of training and you can be helped with your own computer problems and things like that. And so even that network that is like strictly very is very like technology technologist focused, it kind of works because it's trying to help bring people who are not that way into the fold. And we are and it's been challenging because we actually don't really the technology support we had, especially last year in building most of the network a lot of it was coming from D.C., so we had them here once a week, I'm sorry, once a month to, f- to fix some of the thornier issues. You know, and now we've been doing it for a year and a half. We're starting to get pretty good at fixing, doing the troubleshooting ourselves. And that's just, I guess I, my point being, like, uh, it's a testament, I guess, to, like, yes, we're doing the, we have the right plan. We're doing it correctly in the sense that, like, we were starting from a place where we didn't have a lot of technology skills, and we are building it into our neighborhood, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I at this point I have a program assistant who knows parts of the network better than I, and that's <laughs> the goal. So, and that's always been the goal. Yes, it was interesting. I um, so I, I had a um, I was part of a meetup earlier today uh, with a group in Chicago. And, you know, we were going through explaining, uh, you know, how broadband impacts economic development and so forth. And at one point someone asked, you know, would I come in and, and provide the, some consulting services? And I said, well, yes, but understand that my, one of my goals is to make the community folks self-sufficient meaning that it's okay to have a consultant, you know, an expert come in and, and give you a plan or give you, you know, some, some, some key critical advice on, this, on the front end, but the community needs to be working to create its own resources who will carry forth after that, after that consultant leaves. And I, you know, you tell me, but I think that's so incredibly critical to, to have that philosophy as a community, that, you know, we got to be able to do this ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, of course, I agree 100%. You know, I, there was a time, and I would encourage anybody who is doing a project like this of, of any nature to keep that in the front of their mind from the get-go. I mean, you know, uh, at some point last year, I was very anxious because I felt like I had too much of the information myself. You know, um, and all I ever do at night is think about, like, when am I going to move to the Bahamas or something like that, you know. And so <laughs> I realized I have a very, an incredible boss, uh, executive director. Her name is Jill Eisenhart. She's so supportive. I mean, she, when I told her I wanted to do explore a Wi-Fi network, she didn't really know what I was talking about, but she encouraged me to do so. And then she does a good job of helping you figure out what is, like, the work plan to do so. And so when I went to her to say, you know, everything's going really well, but if I left, it could really all fall apart, she was like, yes, you have to. She knows, she feels the same way about her organization as a whole, and so you have to put all sorts of, um, um, I guess, structures and frameworks in place to be filled out so when you some person leaves, it's all there. You know, there's like a guidebook, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this year, in our second year of the Digital Steward Program, we've now hired a technology trainer. I have given him all of the sort of core competencies I feel need to be a Digital Steward needs and the topics to cover based on all the work I've been doing with this. But he, who has some experience at this, he's going to come up with, uh, he's going to build lesson plans and then those lesson plans are going to be in a binder. And so next year, the program assistant that I spoke of can become the trainer. You know, mm-hmm. So I think that is, I think it's a super key point that somebody should think of. 
because it also, you know, one reason I got into that pickle is because I was so excited about it that I was going home at night and working on it and think about thinking about it and all these sorts of things. And I just had to make sure that I got I passed that along or put that down for the next person to use and share that information. So. Right, exactly. And um, mm-hmm. it's one of the one of the uh, folks in the um, in the chat room has a question about are you are you using uh, Google Plus Hangouts or Skype? conferences to uh, help with the training part? Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting question. So yes, in the sense that I had, I had meetings and sometimes the digital stewards were there with our technology sort of experts who were helping us, the field team uh, in D.C. Uh, we you know, we that is how some of the information from them was given to us. We also have a listserv that we can write to that their whole team is on and replies to very quickly. Um, so, I mean, I guess the only other side of that is that, like, I mean, we're all here in Red Hook, so we don't really need to do any hangouts because we just <laughs> come to the office. But yeah, sure. <laughs> in that first, yeah, in that first year when we had some thornier technical issues, or we still they still exist, but now we happen to know how to fix them. Yes, we were using some some of that remote networking to do so, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is um... I actually, and that sort of is the same point. At the same moment that I was worried, I had too much of some of this information. I was also worried that um, in the neighborhood we were too reliant on the, the technology team in D.C. and actually and to their credit, they were they were extremely supportive, but they also were pushing us to 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 do more troubleshooting before we call them, you know, and, and that's fantastic. And we and there were certain moments when they would come to visit us and show us things, and things would click for us when they weren't clicking before in terms of understanding what needs to happen. I mean, when so uh, you know the the it's last winter, one of the last visits they had, they showed us the command line, you know, like the inner workings of the computer and how to get down to that level, which uh-huh. is something that we all, all of us digital stewards were like, or and myself, we're all like, there's no way, you know, I can't do that. And we knew that, that that's what they were doing to get down to some of the more difficult issues. And we were like, well, we're just going to have to let them do it. But then finally they came and they gave us the introduction. And just like anything, especially on these computers, it was finally went, we went in and did it ourselves. And now we're like zipping around the network through the command line, pinging routers that are across the other side, uh, checking routers that are on the other side of the neighborhood through the command line to see if they can ping Google. So if, you know, not only that, I mean, I would, again, bring it back to sort of this empowerment issue. That feels really good for a person who was worried about maybe didn't do well in math and thinks they didn't, so therefore they can't do a technology career, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. So this experience of building the network in the neighborhood, and I would also say um, these young people being identified by their peers and adults and the community as leaders in this sphere and therefore in the community, that also made a big difference, I think, in the way they saw themselves and what they felt they were capable of and wanted to do. And that can be that's that's really powerful for a young person. It's pretty much powerful for it's a powerful thing for anybody to feel that they are looked at as a leader or an, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, or an expert, I suppose. Right. No. No. I I agree. I mean the 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 mutual support, the mutual. Um, uh, positive encouragement and the recognition is vital. I mean, because a lot of times there's no money for, you know, perks and, and, and the kinds of things that you have in the private sector as rewards and inducements. Really what you have are, are sort of the non-monetary intangibles but emotional um, rewards that can be huge. I mean, I think sometimes people work more for the emotional reward than they will for the financial reward. That's not to be exploited, but it is to be encouraged, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, and, and, you know, sorry, go ahead. 
Uh, no, no, I was just I was just like, I your show. I just would, uh, I'll try and be fast. In our neighborhood, that is essential because you know the systemic inequities that a resident of, of public housing will feel uh, will be challenged. That challenge them in their daily life. Plus, living in a sort of uh, in living in a, that housing development and feeling threatened by the um, landlord of possible eviction and things like that. There's no, there's no, there's very little encouragement to being, to taking ownership of or feeling excited about your community if you feel threatened about being in it in the first place. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when I, my, the simplest example is I, when I first started working at Reddick Initiative, I was doing a, teen radio program and I was it makes sense to me that telling our stories, telling stories about our community is a way of empowering ourselves to see the value in our lives. But these young people and who admittedly were much younger than the people are, the young adults I work with now, they were saying to me, But I don't like my neighborhood. I want to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So that was a real difficult that was interesting for me to see but also and a real challenge for us to face which is mm-hmm. how do you grow that um, those sort of intrinsic rewards that you were just speaking about if people are faced with things that are battling against that very thing that you, we know would, would be most effective. So mm-hmm. I wasn't as short as I meant to be. Sorry, you were saying? <laughs> no, I guess so then, hold on, I think we have a call here. Good morning, do we have a caller on the line? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, great. Good morning. How are you? And welcome yeah. to Gigabit Nation. I'm great. Is this Craig? Yes, it is. Yeah, this is Lazone Graves. Hey, how are you? It's been a little I'm while. I'm good. I'm just loving this interview that you have going on here. Uh, you know, when you had interviewed us about our Wi-Fi project in Kansas City, Kansas, you know, uh, I just wanted to let the speaker know he's just right on point, and I'm going to share this interview far and wide, especially here uh, in Kansas, because there's a big broadband initiative going on, and trying to educate them about, you know, the pros and the cons, you know, of super fast speed compared to just basic connectivity and then rolling in programs to supplement, you know, the the activities to really uh, make it meaningful to people who live in these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I no, think uh, – uh, go ahead, Craig. No, 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 please, you. Well, I'd love to hear more about what you guys are doing in Kansas City. Um, I do wonder a bit about, well, I think you're right. There, there has to be a certain amount of service, quality of service for you to then move forward. But it sounds to me like you guys are doing, but I, as Craig and I were talking about, it, I was like, you know about you need to have build up the capacity within the neighborhood itself to use and support these networks. Yeah, and I, I, again, I uh, love, you know, that using youth as stewards, teaching them how to construct networks, maintaining networks, so we can build a crew as different networks want to come online, uh, we can put them to work. Of course, they have Google Fiber in uh, Kansas City, Kansas, Kansas City, Missouri, but there was never really any programming really tried to bring either the young people or their parents in to learn the technology so that they could actually be uh, installing this fiber to the home. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of a shame, and that's sort of what Craig was saying. Model yeah, and that's sort of what I think Craig was sort of saying is that, uh, you know, you don't get necessarily community or economic development just by providing the connection, you know. Um, and it's interesting to see that playing out in Kansas City, too, because, you know, when you first read about that and you're saying, wait a minute, everybody's getting a gigabit connection in their home or whatever it is, it's like, wow, think of the possibilities. But as you're saying, if they're not supported to understand the technology, then the possibilities are much less. Let me ask yeah, you a question have you both on the line, if I, if I can. I, we, got, we have 10 minutes, so I don't, I don't want to rush you. But I do have you know, one from Kansas City, one from New York. Uh, one of the – when I decided to do this particular interview – one of the points that I kind of made to the world at large was, is bringing a gig in widening versus narrowing the digital divide 
primarily for the reason that the way these gigabit networks are being rolled out is that they are going to where the money is. And in New York, I mean, you have a monopoly situation there with Time Warner. So Time Warner is kind of the, the, the entity that, you know, they go where the money is. So even if they upgraded their services tomorrow, you know, in terms of offering faster speeds or what have you, they're going to sell those to where, um, you know, where they can make their buck first. And with Google in Kansas City, there's a certain amount of that with the whole fiberhood thing. I mean, it's not intended to slight low-income folks, but it does what it does. The, the question to each of you is, um, how do you close that gap? Because I've made an assumption that wireless is the way to get people on board with Internet access sooner, faster, to be able to keep up with whatever is being built out by those folks who are chasing gig customers, and we'll start with uh, we'll start with Tony being the guest. I also want Lazar. I want you to get your your take as well. I was hoping you were going to start with Lazar. Uh, I mean, I, I, I heard about that controversy as well, um, and I don't really know what I have, I have an answer to it. I mean, I was having a conversation yesterday about. It's a very difficult situation because essentially this is the same. You can have the same conversation about anything, in the sense that the people with the money are going to have the influence, are going to be able to afford everything, all the advantages, and that's why so many structures in the United States have been built the way they are, is to, so people can gain an advantage, right? Um, I would sort of think, and I, I hate to harp on it, and maybe it's just the first thing that comes to my mind, but again, it's that idea of what is training people to understand what you can do with a community network or just a network period. Um, you know, for the – it was remarkably easy, the maintenance, maintenance, especially now that we have more users and the connection to the Internet, but it's remarkably easy to put up a router and have a network and even have tools and services on that network. There's a – I met a group in Cameroon who's – has a network in a college town, and they have file sharing, and they have they have the MIT open source uh, coursework, and that's all they have on the network. But I, but I think that's a, that's a lot. That's amazing that a person can do that. It's just the network, and as many people hopefully know or could know soon, is like you can do that very easily, you know. And so I guess what I'd say is like maybe that is the direction, I, or that's somewhat the answer is just like realizing that. It may not be, certainly connectivity is a big issue. I mean, it's a huge issue. I'm not saying taking that lightly, but just that uh, local networks have a lot of power as well. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Lizanne, what's your yeah, take? Yeah, I, I want to I weigh in on it too. You know, uh, gigabyte speed is overkill when you're dealing with the target population that we're talking about. They don't need a gigabyte but they do need connectivity. They need connectivity to go online to seek jobs, and they need programming, you know, uh, especially young people. You can have a gigabyte of speed, but they will just get to Facebook fast, chat rooms fast. That doesn't mean that they're learning anything. So teaching, not just teaching young people how to construct networks, but teaching them how to build websites, to go on Code Academy and code, having structured type of programs so that they can start understanding how this Internet works in their lives. How do you build what you see? How do you maintain, you know, uh, what is out there? When it comes to economic development, I don't need a gigabyte to build a website or to social market a small uh, business. I need to know how to do that. Those are little micro jobs that we can instruct young people uh, to do to help small businesses, putting a little money in their pocket, helping market the, uh, the small businesses in their neighborhood. That doesn't need gigabyte speed. That just That really needs people having the applied knowledge on how to do something with whatever speed that they have. So I sort of try to take gigabyte out of the conversation because that's only going to go for the people who got the money, you know, to pay for it. But connectivity uh, and then what you're teaching them for that connectivity, that's really where the game changer is going to be. Mm -hmm. yeah, I would add, too, that also I would say maybe that whether it's a gigabyte or whatever it is, the connectivity should be 
it should be the um, responsibility of, well, this is a lot of stretch, I know, but of, of a municipality. You know, the whole net neutrality common carrier issue, I think, is central because, every you know, you, to be a full citizen, you need to be connected. And so, you know, you in a home, you know, a phone line, a basic phone line, or to call the police is, you know, that's free. That's a right everyone has. And there should be some, there should be, that same rule should apply to Internet connectivity. And it well, should be at a level that is decent to do the things that Lizone talks about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the one of the things is that uh, we've got a great partner with the Kansas City, Kansas Housing Authority. He was a, he saw the vision and said, hey, let's do it, you know, with uh, the Magic Jack. You know, you can have a phone, you can have, you can dial 911 uh, and have your messages, you know, come to you via email. And we're trying to look at all the other technologies that are out there and try to explain to people how to keep your bills down, but still how to stay maximum connected to um, to who you are. When you're low income and maybe on welfare and maybe have one of those government phones, you're going to run out of minutes at the end of the month. You don't want to put that number on an application when you don't have minutes. But if you have uh, wireless access, you get you a little magic jack, and I'm not trying to sell you know, their product. I'm just using that as an example. One thing that they won't have to do is worry about losing that follow-up call for a job opportunity. Yep. I, it makes plenty of sense. makes plenty of sense. This is, um, this is good, and hopefully uh, if you guys need a way to connect with each other, just ping me after the show because I'm a firm believer that you know, efforts that are going on in different parts of the country need to be connected. They need to be connected because you guys in your respective areas are facing the same challenges. You have the same kinds of audiences. You know, so the more that people use this connectivity to also link with each other in other cities is vital. And, in fact, one of the, the um, audience in the, in the chat room brought up this thing of um, – you know, maybe there needs to be some sort of national mentor, you know, Facebook page or society or something that ties mentors together so they can exchange, you know, information and best practices and here's how you address X, Y, and Z um, issues. But um, I don't know, Tony, from your perspective, you say you get contacted a lot from people in other parts of New York. Do you also get connected, uh, contacted from people outside of New York? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, it's happened a few times. Um, it's happened a few times, and it's interesting because oftentimes the situations are so different. Like I remember the most recent person who contacted me was trying to connect um, rural communities in Maine and I could only speak to only some of his technical issues. Um, and, of course, then I went into the, my whole thing, obviously, about programs to support it and things like that. Um, there, um, and, but I have, and myself, I have reached out a couple times to some people doing some interesting things. So I think it seems to me, I wonder what the other caller would think, but it seems to me that the people who are doing this type of stuff are it's a it's sort of a movement that's growing and people are starting to be mm-hmm. connected in that in that you know and, and thinking about these networks and internet networks especially thinking about them differently you know? excellent we uh, Lozon, did you have a, an add on that we have about 90 seconds so we got to kind of wrap this up no no i i agree what with what he with what he said i am having a uh more calls from other states, you know, inquiring about how we did it. Can you give us some mentoring? So I think that that idea that you had of making some type of localized point for people within this specific area of technology and expertise, I think that we do need to work as a group and share our knowledge and uh, try to work together so that people who want to do something wherever they at, they can find one place where they can come and, and get with someone who can help them wade through the weeds. Mm-hmm. Sort of. That makes a lot of sense. And in fact, I had a conversation with uh, some folks at Tropos. They're one of the big wire, wireless Wi-Fi mesh companies. And I think I want to kind of, you know, bring this idea to them that, uh, you know, in closing, 
you know, you guys in your respective areas are doing lots of good stuff. And I want to thank you, Tony, for being a guest on our show today. And, uh, and Lazone, you know, you were on our show before, and it's always great to have you involved. And so, you know, in closing, we got to find ways to tie all of you folks together so that the movement grows and we help each other and, and we get further faster as a result of that. So that's my parting comments to, to both of you. To my audience, thank you very, very much for listening in. Uh, I appreciate all of your support. On Monday, we're going to talk about the big deal that's just been done in Utopia that I think is going to change the whole of public-private partnerships. So join us again. Thank you very much, and everybody have a great, wonderful weekend. Great show. Thank you, Greg. Bye-bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.